what was really fun is having Pete Davidson and Paul Dano working together. Oh, my God. <laughs> because in the best way, I mean, Paul, incredibly prepared, incredibly methodical, be calling me the night before, being, I'm not sure about this line. And I'm thinking, Pete Davidson's in the scene with him. I don't know if we're going to get to that line. <laughs> <laughs> because, but Pete, like, you know, there's a, he's very funny in the film, but like he's doing it from a very character driven place. So in that final scene where they're, they're grilling him and trying to get him ready for the testimony, my only direction to Pete was like, you're trying to break him. Like, yeah. <laughs> you don't, yeah. let, don't let him get a word in. And he really wouldn't let him get a word in. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a group of amateur stock traders flip the script on Wall Street in director Craig Gillespie's biographical comedy drama, Dumb Money. The film tells the true story of how regular guy Keith Gill starts a movement with other novice stock traders to get rich. By turning GameStop into one of the world's hottest companies, he helps make stock market history much to the chagrin of the finance industry giants who fight back. In addition to Dumb Money, Gillespie's other directorial credits include the feature films I, Tanya, Lars and the Real Girl, Cruella, and Fright Night. He won the 2006 DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Commercials and was nominated in the same category in 2002, 2003, 2010, and 2023. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Gillespie spoke with director Phil Lord about filming Dumb Money. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Yeah, that's right. Stanford Craig Gillespie and his crew made this incredible film. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it on a Sunday night. I am so relieved how much I like this film. I watched it with you guys. I hadn't seen it. I was going to lie. I loved this movie. It's incredible. It's funny. My question is, is it okay for a good movie to be funny? Follow-up question, is it okay to think in a funny movie? (laughs) (laughs) That's two two big questions questions. right there. Well, interestingly, this movie is funnier with with a, a larger group. It's like... For us, there was always a very strong message going on underneath this, but I always like to use humor to be able to connect with the audience. It's like, I feel like the way that we relate in life is with humor. And to have films that are just drama or comedy, it's just, it isn't how we react with each other. And so I'm always looking for that way to, to, to put that dance in there. And it's like, have the humor come from a very real place. So... It didn't seem as funny as it plays for a large audience when you play with 12 friends. Yes, <laughs> and it's like the larger the audience, I think the more the humor resonates. Tell me about striking that balance as you're shooting. In other words, like you seem to have an incredible command of the emotional storytelling in every scene. Like I can see the dance between two characters. I can watch when one character 
wins a scene. I can see the look on someone's face when they know they've lost the scene. And, and yet there's an incredible sense of spontaneity and like fun. <laughs> How do you balance that spontaneity and that design? Um, I said we were just talking about this before because it's funny. I, I actually have, this is my third film with Nicholas Couch Quintana. So I did I, Tanya and the DP that I did I, Tanya and Corella with. And uh, we shot list the whole movie before we start. So like you can see this, I think there's like 260 scenes in this film and we're multiple cutting between like eight different storylines constantly. So we needed to know exactly, are we going from a wide to a tight? It's like we're in a tight, you know, it's like everything's kind of figured out that way. But then once we get into the scene, I'm always looking for how can we elevate it? Um, you know, there's the great writing that Rebecca and Lauren have done. Um, this was a very unusual film because I was dealing with, a different actor every week and a different actor isolated really it's like they had their own space and and they're basically their their own journey so i would have four or five pivotal scenes each week that they had to land those scenes to, for the audience to connect with them so i was always looking for how we can do that like when anthony ramos has one scene with his parents um and it's quite a dramatic scene as written and it ended with the mother saying be careful this can be like a drug to, to your point with like just the drama, it's like, it just, it's just kind of a heavy scene. And it, I just, with cameras rolling, I said to Anthony, like when she says that, just take the phone and sniff it like a line of Coke. And, and the mother's like slap them across the shoulder. And in that five seconds, you understand that they have a dynamic where they're not hiding things from each other. They can joke about things. It just gives you a whole other perspective with a joke. And, and a joke that I think illuminates the emotional experience of like, you know, riding high, right, <laughs> yeah. on an investment. And the, and yeah, the intensity of that. It's like, so each week, you know, Shailene came in. It's like the only actor that I actually got to really work with was uh, Paul Dano. Everybody else landed, went straight into the scenes. Uh, you, know, you didn't rehearse a ton. You just, you show up, you block, and here we go. No, I, I have an idea of blocking that we've done, Nicholas and I, like what I'm thinking. But, uh, you know, with Paul... The script was evolving enormously. This script, this film happened relatively quickly in, you know, for films where I, I came on to it uh, with Rebecca and Lauren had written this amazing script, but just two months before it had been the congressional hearing, and I said to them, that's got to be the third act of the film. So amazingly, they rewrote that whole third act, which of course is the trickle theory of, you know, you see it happen through the whole movie when it gets subpoenaed and all of these moments that happen lead up to that third act. So that was all being done in the six weeks before we shot. Um, and also in that six weeks, I started meeting with Paul every weekend. And we added about five scenes. It's like, we'd be like, well, hang on a second. He's coming home. We found this like Daily Mail shot where he's waving to somebody. So we're like, all right, there's press on his front door. There's very little footage of the actual Keith Gill. Um, so there's press on the front lawn. Obviously, they wouldn't like that. It's right when he got subpoenaed. So, you know, I'd say to Rebecca Lauren, write a scene, you know, from that photo, we'll go inside and what was the conversation that happened? Let's, you know, what, let's see what happens when he, get, he got fired from his job and he lost $30 million in 24 hours. You know, so we kept sort of brainstorming these scenes and each week would turn them out. So Shailene had um, signed on before all of this was written. So she came in and, you know, all of these scenes, you know, they suddenly had to do you know, that in a week together. And she did an amazing job. Even this last scene, 
there was no dialogue with, uh, with Shailene. She wasn't actually written in the script when he does his testimony for the mm. congressional hearing. And she was there that day. And I said, sit on the stairs there and, and just support him. And the interaction that they had as actors yeah. uh, was amazing. And she literally doesn't have a line. I, I find it so compelling how it's a movie about the, the behavior of crowds. And it's told in these really intimate spaces, like you're describing. And what I was really struck by watching it, I was like, this is a movie about feelings. <laughs> and I, I'm curious about when you're working on those scenes. First of all, where did you do, the idea just popped in your head? Like, Shailene, do it. Sit on the stairs? Like, is just that how your mind works? This will complicate the scene in a great way. It's interesting. It's the, the emotional like, truth to this film came early on for me because my son, I've got two sons, my younger one, who's 20, was 24 at the time, was in on GameStop. So we were living this in our household and the intensity of it. So were you scared for him? <laughs> that conversation with the parents the night before? It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you sell? What's going on? <laughs> it's like he wasn't nearly the, the escalation of that, but he was trading options. He did exactly a similar trajectory to the college girls where he got in early and then he, he did a, a big option the day before the big spike, got out that next morning. But the stress level, you know, seeing that firsthand and seeing him checking every three minutes when to get out of the pre-markets, watching the markets till three in the morning, like that gave me sort of the emotional resonance that I needed for all of our characters when they went on this journey the frustration and the anger that happened when you know, Robin Hood shut down the buy option and they came like, running downstairs. He's like, people are pissed. And, and really, like, you just saw this like, all play out in real time. And so that, that outrage you know, is what I wanted to take into the third act. And I wanted to take the audience on that journey that they all went on. I, I, I think you succeeded. I, I, I think it, it's interesting. I... Uh, it's like a rise. You you took us on the high. We're at the craps table. We're having a great time. We've had a couple of drinks. Like our friends are here. Everybody's winning. And then like suddenly that turn happens and you start to freak out. And I felt in incredibly anxious. <laughs> no, that was, the, that was the hope. I kept telling our keys as we were working on this. I don't want the audience to be able to breathe in the second half of the movie. It's like, it should be that stressful. Um, so, you know, as we designed it with, the, you know, the way that we were shooting it, the momentum that it had, um, the memes that we were using, all the news footage, it was always in mind with that pace to it, to keep it tight, to keep it sort of relentless and keep that pressure on. I worked with Kirk Baxter on this, uh, the editor who I had, it was my first time working with him. Uh, he's done all of David Finch's films for the last 17 years. Um, and with We'd done a little bit of television together and some commercials, so we've and he's a close friend, so it was it was um he was more nervous than I was about the friendship, <laughs> but um it worked out great, and we had a wonderful time with it and uh just being able to create that pressure cooker and this movie was different for me. The last couple of films I've had an enormous amount of needle drop in them, you know fifty tracks, and this one there's an hour of score in it, which was yeah. you know a very different approach and visually we we did it differently too. It's like, it's mostly lock-offs. I, I noticed that. Yeah. I, I was watching the first 10 minutes. I was like, Craig is such an expressive camera. He's, you know, and I was like, I don't think he's going to move this camera the whole damn time. And yet there's something about the images that you guys put together that they all 
feel evocative. It seems, it seems counterintuitive because you've got all these characters stationary, you know, sitting in front of monitors, sitting on phones. But part of that idea with the tension was I knew I would have to give Kirk like a lot of coverage, wides, tights. You see Paul sitting at a monitor the first time, there's probably 12 angles, you know, dirties, cleans, you know, the camera, wides from behind, profiles, all the inserts to give the pressure. And then you have that opportunity to sort of stretch it out or they condense it in a way that you can't if you're in the middle of a camera move. Are you shooting multiple cameras all the time or one at it's, a time? It's usually, when they're on those monitors, it would be maybe two with Paul, but usually a lot of the times it's single. It's single and then you're doing like a couple of takes and break, break angle, I, or do um, you do a lot of takes in every angle? I, um, it, it, it depends on you know, what we're doing. It's, uh, I, I tend to not cut uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I, I want to make, yeah, let the actor be in that space and let them be able to feel that they can play. Um, I, my feeling is every time you cut, everybody comes in, they start touching things, adjusting yeah, yeah. things, and it's just distracting for the actor. So, you know, I like to be close to the camera, let them do their performance, just quickly adjust it, go again, let them get in a rhythm, play with it a little bit, like get the, get the script and then, you know, maybe add to it. Like I, I tends to be spontaneous with me, you know, it's like even that scene with Seth, you know, with the, uh, with the wine rack behind him, it, you know, it's, <laughs> it wasn't, it actually wasn't scripted to be there. Um, it was scripted to be like, upstairs, but then I walked into that house that morning and you can see the disparity of wealth with this world. And, and I said, and it's filled with equipment, of course. And I turned to my AD and I'm like, sorry, I think we've got to move all of this stuff and shoot it right here and let's put, you know, all the staff outside and in masks and you get all this like opportunity to show this wealth disparity that's a large theme within the film. And then as we were shooting it, I, I said to our day player, uh, ask him where he's going to do it. And, and he says here and you can say in front of the wine rack and then Seth improvised, well, it's not that big, you know, and she's like, and she said, yeah, it's huge. And it's like, you just get that little bit of magic. Yeah. Well, you created a, like a, piece of like dramatic irony just in choosing the location, right? Exactly. And putting pressure on the scene and then responding to it, which is, I think, why I think it, everything does feel lived in. Are you like, okay, like what is your direction? We're at the DJ. What does your direction sound like? You know what I mean? If, if you're, okay, you haven't called cut. Um, I, it's a, it, it was interesting with this, that, because we had multiple takes going on. I'm sorry, multiple stories, but they're all going through the same journey. Yeah. So I kind of had that pretty, pretty locked in in the sense of like, you know, at this moment, the stakes are so high and the pressure is so high. Like, it, depending on who it is, it's like you, you could literally be like nauseous right now trying to figure out what you can do and you just don't know. And you can, I get very, when I deal with actors, it's either really simple where it's like, let's just make it faster or if it's not a simple thing like that, I always try to give them an emotion. Like, I, it's like, it drives me, you know, it's like trying to tell them, like, you know, to hit this word or do a line read. It's, it's just not, I, I don't care at all about that. To me, yeah. it's like, it's just got to feel honest. So I'm trying to, like, tap into, like, an emotion. And it's like, um, you know, like, with the scene, you know, with uh, Shailene and, and Paul, where she's like, we're going, to, I'm going to my mother's house. Um, I think like actors, honestly, it's like they see a scene where there's a fight and the first instinct is to go big with it. Mm -hmm. um, but then it's like, you know, I, I tend to want to bring it down and contain it. 
and 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 just sort of feel like that 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 stress and that anger underneath or the you know the paralyzed feeling and I tend to go that way a little more often I'll try and try something that's not what you would expect right emotionally you know well what I like about like that is written like she's laying down the law the way that scene plays to me is that the marriage is not in doubt no that was something um <laughs> something that it's interesting it's like we had to surmise a lot because Keith Gill um, has not been involved in this. It's like there's an enormous amount of footage he's posted online. Um, every week he would post a seven-hour video for a year. Um, you know, and I, I honestly think that Paul Dano went through all of them. It's you know, and then he had a, a Wall Street Journal interview, and he had that testimony that he did. And, but no, the, the you and the filmmaking team and Paul have not met. Keith. No, and we reached out in prep, during shoot, after the shoot, and. And the, he, I mean, when he when he disappeared, he's disappeared. Right. There has not been a post from that April post that he did in, 19, in 2021. So we would have to, you know, there's nothing in the film that he didn't publicly present, you know. Um, but then we would have to sort of fill the gaps in on that. But our impression was, it seems like you couldn't be having these posts <laughs> and be so positive and and so uh, vulnerable. If there was problems at home, it just didn't. Right. It just didn't seem like he just seemed so grounded and comfortable and and confident in his beliefs that it, just to be able to go and do that for seven hours every Friday night, you know, in the house with it when they've got a, like a young child. It was, it was one of the things I admired about it. Some of these scenes, you you are with the blocking, you're filling in the details of how these people behave, like America putting the the shoes on the kids. So it is those details. <laughs> One of the fun scenes, it's like, and somebody had asked me about this with, you know, Shailene and Paul, and it's like when they run downstairs, um, and you do, you do blocking like right before you shoot. And so they, they run downstairs when, when, when there's been a freeze, uh, Wall Street Bets is shut down, and then he gets the phone call that he's fired. And I always had this, this vision that I wanted Paul to go into the, into the laundry room to take that call and just take it away from her because he's, He's feeling like the pressure of it, and he's a private person. As we were doing that, instinctively, Shailene went and sat in his space and sort of took over his territory. And I just loved the subliminal nature of that. And I was like, that feels great that you're like now taking control, you know. And then he comes back, and you know, and she sits there at the console for the first time we see her in that space. Yeah. And is that those blocking ideas? They come up on the day, or you had that like that when was, we started that, reading? That the was script? on the day. That was Shailene sit like having the instinct to want to go and sit there. And it's like, that feels great, you know. So you've got to just try and stay open and, you know, you want the actors to be able to contribute and bring bring something to it. You know, it's, you know, this scene, it, what was really fun is having Pete Davidson and Paul Dano working together. Oh, my God. <laughs> because That looked like you rolled out on a few takes. <laughs> <laughs> because in the best way, I mean, Paul, incredibly prepared, incredibly methodical, be calling me the night before being, I'm not sure about this line. And I'm thinking Pete Davidson's in the scene with him. I don't know if we're going to get to that line. <laughs> because, but Pete, like, you know, there's a, he's very funny in the film, but like he's doing it from a very character driven place, you know, where, where he's saying, uh, you know, where you see like him at the dinner table and he's saying, nobody wants their baby. It's a very funny line. It's Pete came up with, but it's part of his character. You know, it's part of the family dynamic that's going on. So in that final scene where they're, they're grilling him and trying to get him ready for the testimony, my only direction to Pete was like, you're trying to break him. 
Yeah. <laughs> you don't, yeah. let, don't let him get a word in and he really wouldn't let him get a word in. <laughs> but that's such an astute direction because you're talking about the gamesmanship of the scene. It's a, it's about how to activate the relationship. Yeah. It's not about like, you're sad. <laughs> it's a, like mess with him. He's your brother. Like, don't let him yeah. get away with anything. Yeah. And there is a similar thing with the family dynamic. It's a, uh, you know, the way that scene was first written when he says we're up 22 million, there was concern and, and, and empathy with what was going on. And I'm like, I don't want you guys to be mad. <laughs> I want you to be stressed. It should be pandemonium when this happens. She, yeah. You know, he's a truck driver and she's a retired nurse and he's got $22 million that he's hanging on to. And I had to go over to Clancy Brown several times because the line was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I want you to say, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and it just changes the whole dynamic of the scene yes. when he starts that way. The thing that's interesting to me is that those amounts that the, the, the money is so perilous that like, if you have a hundred dollars, like in a way <laughs> it's not, it, it doesn't feel as scary. The minute you have suddenly gained a hundred thousand dollars, like now you're anxious. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's because these are life changing stakes. And, and the other thing that was, was sort of mystifying for a lot of the traders is, and myself included, was they're dealing with options, which is a very complicated equation. And it's not like you can lose 10 or 15 or 20% of your stocks. You lose it all. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a zero. If it doesn't hit, it's zero. Um, so the stakes are incredibly high and intense. Yeah. And I, I thought it was one of the, th the, in a movie that's sort of about, you know, the everyday person. I thought it was very interesting the way you cut down all of like the fancy rich people. Like from the first second they're there, the shot of Seth's shoes, <laughs> which is sort of like humiliating uh, uh, you criticism. Like the, you, don't, you don't like those shoes? I love those shoes. But the fact that he's wearing them and then he runs through the hedge, to me, like you're asserting the impotency of all of these people who have a lot of control over like these big levers, but it's all about how they actually don't have control. They're the worst tennis players I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, Seth asked if I wanted him to get ten tennis lessons and I said, no. Right. Cause that's not what, that, that's not the point. No, it's, um, but it, honestly, it's a, yes, it's, it, I think you can bring some subjectivity to this. It's like, I think the banking community will view the movie differently than, you know, like the everyday person. It's like, and I, th I think very carefully, I'm not doing anything that's so black and white. You know, it's like, it was important to us to show that Seth's character had a family and children and he was a good husband. You know, it's like, we weren't trying to, to make it that simplistic in terms of the way that we portrayed people. I think it's, we all bring our own uh, baggage to it. So it's very easy to, to look at it and be able to, you know, take your perspective and, and sort of enhance that in a way, but I wanted it to be that. I wanted to be that participatory. You know, the, the movie is at eye level with all the characters. That's how I felt. Yeah, I think um, that was. It was everything was always done with like that kind of respect. It's I mean, to different degrees. Gabe Plotkin was the character, obviously, that was the villain in this, like so to speak, that they were all after. So there was more time spent, like you know, flushing him out. It's uh, like with Steve Cohen, for instance, and you're talking about the spontaneity of it. Each week we'd have a new actor and a new character we're dealing with. And I'd sort of do a, maybe a quick Google search of what was going on. And it came up that he had a pet pig 
that he had for 10 years at the house until it got too big and they had to put it out to a, an, a farm. So I was, I called production. I'm like, we need a pet pig <laughs> to put That's in the house. call every producer dreads. <laughs> yeah. Craig years. wants a pig. Yeah. In the house. <laughs> the house doesn't, yeah. <laughs> but it does, it has that like, you know what? Should we throw a pig in this scene and just see what happens? Yeah. It's incredible. Tell me like, uh, so I heard that, when Sidney Pollack starts a movie, started a movie, he would call the HODs and he would say, do you want to get scared? <laughs> so like what the point is like, this isn't only fun to do if like we don't know how to do it before we get started. What scared you about starting this movie? Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, I think it's always stressful I mean, it's funny. It's like I'm still driving to set. I'm like, I can't believe I still get stressed. Like after 30 years, whether it's a commercial or whatever it is, it's always those jitters that you have. But when the camera's rolling, I kind of forget all of that. Mm. I knew I had, you know, I had some production keys on this. Like, you know, Cami Lennox who did wardrobe. There's so much wardrobe and there's so many changes. We've done Pam and Tommy together. She's just so incredibly talented and intuitive with that that, and that can really like slow things down. It's like we're doing a lot of wardrobe changes in a day. We had a, a very tight, this was 31 days, this film. <laughs> so it was a lot to shoot. And, you know, it, it, so we were really moving. And, and I'd worked with a lot of these actors before. So they kind of know that we can be, it, we, Nicholas lights incredibly quickly, even though it's beautiful. So it is spending as much time with the actors as we can, but, um, and getting those scenes. So I, I don't know if I was necessarily scared on this. I no, think you're too good to be scared. No, no, it's independent as well. So it's like there's nobody like looking down over your shoulder. You get to you really do what you want to do and and go for it. Or was there something that you you learned on the picture that you or you understood like you've thought as deep deep as deeply about this subject matter as anybody at this point? You know, along with like Lauren, Rebecca, your other filmmakers, like, is there an insight that you have that came out of the experience of making the movie that maybe you didn't have when you went in? It was the, um, the nuance of, of the complicity of what happened through this whole Robin Hood and SEC investigation. I didn't quite, it, it's like, I was, I was a little bit more, it, it's still, it, it's still a gray area in terms of the legality of what happened. It's like, as uh, Rebecca and Lauren said, it's not, maybe it wasn't illegal, but it wasn't moral. And there's actually been changes now with the SEC since the film has come out that have made it more stringent Is with, that short, right? with shorting practices. It just happened last week. Um, so going through the step-by-step -step of when the freeze happened, like the conversations that happened with Citadel, all of those things were enlightening. Some of that came out like as we were like just literally like the month before we were shooting where these, uh, the lawsuit came out with the text messages that happened between Citadel and Robin Hood. So when Sebastian goes into that closet and says, maybe now is a good time for me to talk to Ken Griffin, that's the text message from the night before verbatim, you know, because we, we were, we knew we would be scrutinized with this. So we, there was a lot of like, there was a lot of verification of like things that are in the film. Right. It's so interesting. It's like, it's spontaneous and captured, but there are things that are exactly as they happen that you had certain, to adhere yeah, to. In certain areas, we had to be very clear. And even Paul was an amazing gatekeeper, you know, with Keith Gill's character, because, you know, there's, there was lawsuits at Mass Mutual, with, uh, which is where he worked. There was a $4 million lawsuit there. So there's a lot of litigation flying around this story. And um, 
so, you know, he would, he really, you know, at certain times he'd be like, you know, Keith actually said it like this when he did his post, you know, and all this. So he was really trying to make sure that we got everything exactly right. Right. That's like, um, like a documentarian's like ethic, you know, that, so like you're making this funny movie, you're stretching the truth here and there for the, to, to bring out the broader truth, but also incredibly, um, uh, incredibly circumspect yeah. about some of the fine details. Um, actually, I just something we did learn on the film, but it was in post. Actually, was like how much information do we need to give the audience in terms of of the mechanics of of the stock exchange? And it, interestingly, I, I, we did our first screening. There was a lot of exposition the characters were doing, mm. um, and very quickly we realized it just completely sort of destroyed the momentum and the intensity of their journey. And we had this incredible luxury that all of the memes, all of the news anchors, talk show hosts, it's all actual footage from that period. So we're almost making two different films. So we started giving all of that information to the memes and the news anchors and using it that way. And, and that was already part of the edit, but you just said, yeah, let's, there, let's beef that up. Yeah, and take, and take the exposition away from the actors. Yeah. I thought that was really effective. Is there how else did the edit um, change while you guys were cutting? That that honestly was was the biggest change. It's like in terms of the performances within the scenes, they were pretty consistent. And I I, I work quickly, and Kirk was the same in the sense that like I'd be getting cuts like two days later on the set. It just sends me quick times to see how it's going, and so we we see the tone of it and what's working. I showed the actors so the actors coming in the next week, here's part of the movie so they can see like what they're stepping into. Um, right. You don't cut on the day, but you... I you, usually do. Really? Like you'll, you'll have a working cut I, on the side. On this one, I didn't because the unions are a little different in New York. <laughs> 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 and I wasn't allowed. But um, my VTR guy, I've had this one VTR guy, Rich Millard, for 15 years. He's done three of my films. And he, like, he did Corella and Itania. And so I cut in real time with him. And then I send that cut to the uh, editorial so they get an idea of like how we're constructing and it. And you can tell how you're doing. Yeah, and we'll throw music on it and everything. So on the day, it's like they'll, they'll be seeing it with music. And I, um, well, uh, I'll end with a, with a doozy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I found striking about the, the, I, the there's a, a great filmmaker, Neil Blomkamp, that you make. No, he made a great movie, District 9, kind of a, a very political film, a very hopeful film. And he said to me once, he says, if you want to change the world, get out of the movie business. <laughs> and I was like, you think that? And I was like, and I was watching the movie going like, yeah, I, these people are all in some level like trying to scream out into the void and hope that it does something, you know? How do you... Why do you keep doing it? <laughs> I think that on some level, personally, I feel like I'm deluded. Like I know Neil's right, but I feel like I'm deluded. And the reason we do it, because I think maybe one person out there. Do you, what thought do you give to the impulse to make the work, especially when you're talking about something that is impactful, immediately impactful? <laughs> I don't, it's like, obviously it's got to speak to you. Yeah. It's like, it's got to be something that you can connect to, that you can understand that journey. This, seeing my son and, and what was, they were going through with that community, like that outrage and that frustration was the one thing that I, I really latched onto here. 
Plus, it was all on the backdrop of COVID. It's like it was this incredibly profound experience we'd all been through, and I think this wouldn't have happened without COVID. It's like right. we're all alienated. There was the loss of loved ones, the loss of jobs, the the disparity of wealth that was front and center. That's like still going on in a very big way, obviously with the strikes and to see all of that come together and have this be a, it happened to be the mouthpiece for that, you yeah. know, which was the stock. It was 8 million people being able to get together and like, and, and have something to say and affect change in a way. And just that frustration. And, um, you know, Wall Street bets went from 400,000 to 8 million people in eight weeks. <laughs> and so you can understand the anger and the frustration you know, from the, from just that point of view, and to see that, and to see ultimately at this point in the film, there really wasn't a change. Like it was, it's like there was a self fulfilling prophecy of like the system feels rigged. They got screwed. A lot of people lost money. I mean, there were definitely people that won that that won in a big way, but a lot of people that didn't get in early enough lost. And it was sort of a self fulfilling prophecy for them. But in a hope, it gives you that sense to go out and as a community and as a, as a, a collective to like have a, have a, a say in what's happening. And here in the middle of hot labor summer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's kind of gratifying obviously to hear that it made an impact last week with the SEC, but it's, it's, it's just hopefully motivates people in all aspects. It's not obviously just with wall street, but just as a, as a collective, you know, you can make a difference. Yeah. I find it that it's like, a, uh, it, it's been a time where we all feel out of control. And this is a movie about, you know, potency, <laughs> lack of it, the people who think they have it and they don't, right? And the people who think they don't have it and they do. Yeah. Um, congratulations on the movie. I truly loved it. These guys loved it. Give Craig one more round of applause for Thank this wonderful film. Thank you all very film. much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.